Hi, this is David Flowers, senior pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. Amen, amen. Thank you, Seven. So glad that you're here with us and leading us in worship, and welcome to our Messiah wrestling team as well. We're glad that you're here. If you're visiting with us, no matter who you are, we're so glad you chose to worship with us. Uh, My name is David Flowers. I'm the senior pastor here at Grantham. Have you ever experienced a look, looking forward at an experience that looked scary or impossible for God to work in it? Think about that. Before I met my wife at uh, East Texas Baptist University, a private school uh, in Texas, much like Messiah, uh, she was part of a, a study group and there was a guy in this study group, a tall, big guy, from South, I believe this is correct, South Central Los Angeles from the projects. And he had forgotten a binder or something and needed a ride back to his dorm to get it so that they could study. And Lana volunteered to take him to the the dorm. Yeah, you know, so, so she, she does this and she says that she felt the Lord impress upon her to witness to him. And she did. <laughs> and he accepted Jesus. Uh, it's quite a story. I don't have time to go into more of it. But just to say that later on, I was a youth pastor at a church in the area and he came and spoke to the youth about how God had changed his life. Uh, And one of the things that he says really opened himself up to this little white girl (laughs) was that she was brave enough to talk to him. And it was obvious that God was already at work in his life. So what seemed like a scary, impossible situation, the Lord had clearly gone before my wife and was already at work on Kenny's heart. This is the kind of thing that God can do It's the kind of thing that we're going to see today in Jonah chapter 3. As you know, we are in a four-part series called The Gospel According to Jonah. And if you've been trekking with us each week, I trust that you can see how the book of Jonah, which is only four short chapters, is truly a magnificent work of Hebrew literature. Truly. I mean, there's just so much depth to it and layers of which we've not really had time to go into here. Uh, in this series. It really does require a deeper kind of Bible study. But so, so it, it is a magnificent piece of Hebrew literature, but it's also obvious to me how the Holy Spirit is at work in it. There, there's something otherworldly about it, something supernatural about this little Hebrew prophet of a book. It's ancient comedy, we said. It is, it is satire. That is, it uses humor and irony and the unexpected to communicate a serious message about how God is calling 
his people to share his heart and to join his mission of mercy. If you're just joining us for this series and maybe you're new to the book of Jonah, it's a story about a rebellious prophet who through God's wonder-working power, as the hymn says, turns out to be the most successful evangelist in the Hebrew scriptures. And no, no help from Jonah on that. This is all the Lord, as we've seen. And Jonah has very little to do with that success because he's not happy about any of it, as we'll continue to see today. So ultimately, it's through this comical story that we're being challenged to look in the mirror to check our own hearts and then accept the invitation to join God's redemptive mission to save the lost, even to believe that our enemies can be saved by God. Before we look at chapter three this morning, here's a brief uh, recap of what we've read so far. Remember that Jonah was an eighth century BC prophet in the northern kingdom of Israel. This is the time of the divided kingdoms, the kingdom of Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And the kingdom of Israel is being threatened by the growing Assyrian empire. And Assyria was a brutal enemy, as we're gonna see a little bit later. They are, they are at Israel's doorstep. They're threatening to expand their territory into what the people of God believed was the promised land. And so when Jonah is called by God to go speak a prophetic word of coming judgment to his enemies in the capital city of the Assyrian empire, that being Nineveh, he runs from God in the opposite direction. Now, how does Jonah run from God in this story? Well, he buys a ticket on a boat full of pagans bound for Tarshish, this city that's a symbol of a false Eden, 2,500 miles in the opposite direction. And on the way, the ship runs into a violent storm. It's so bad that these experienced sailors are afraid for their lives. <laughs> They've you would have think they've seen it all, but this is quite the violent storm. They're afraid, they're, they're tossing supplies overboard, they're crying out to their gods, and they discover that Jonah is asleep in the bottom of the boat. And after a, a brief conversation, they discover through Jonah's own admission that he is the reason for this storm. Yahweh is upset with him, Yahweh being the covenant name for God. But rather than repent, he tells these disreputable men to throw him overboard. They don't want to do that, but they do it. They do it reluctantly. The storm stops, prompting the pagan sailors to repent and to worship God. And here you have a boat full of pagan sailors showing more fear and faith in Yahweh than his own prophet. So even as he's running away from Yahweh, Jonah is winning souls to the Lord. <laughs> I mean, he hasn't even gotten to Nineveh yet, and God is already using him. Again, that is because this is an ancient comedy. As I said last week, the intent of the author with this literary genre is to expose Jonah's stupidity, to expose his folly in a humorous and ironic way, where the bizarre and the unexpected happen, like being swallowed by a big fish in the heart of the sea. And don't forget, as Jonah sinks further, we saw this last week, he sinks further and further down into the darkness, into the heart of the sea, praying as he goes. He didn't encounter the feared sea monster, right, that the Jews would have expected, this mythological creature that represented human and demonic evil. No, Jonah was dinner for a large fish, a large fish 
a fish that was commissioned by God himself, the book of Jonah tells us. And after praying a pious prayer in the belly of that fish, one that is absent of confession, remember? One that is absent of true repentance. In the belly of this fish, which appears, according to the author, to have the potential of being turned into a womb for Jonah's rebirth, Jonah is then spit out on dry land. He's given a second chance. And today in chapter 3, we'll see what Jonah does with that second chance and how the God of mercy goes before him. Would you pray with me? Father, we come to you again, and we now intentionally open up our hearts and our minds to you, Lord. Uh, We set aside all the other things that are crowding our minds and distracting us from hearing from you, Lord. Would you help us to focus? Holy Spirit, would you speak a clear word to us? Would you set us free? Would you help us to know the God who looks like Jesus in a deeper way after having heard this message? So Lord, speak to us now for your servants are listening and all God's people said, amen, amen. Turn to Jonah chapter three if you would. If you have your Bible, a hard copy or on your phone or there's a Bible in the pew back in front of you, turn to Jonah chapter three. We're gonna begin with verse one. And I'm just gonna walk through this verse by verse for us this morning. Jonah chapter three, verse one. Then the Lord, again, when you see Lord in all caps, that is the covenant name for God in Hebrew, Yahweh. Then Yahweh spoke to Jonah a second time. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Get up and go. Look look at what verse one is saying. It's like, Let's try this again. <laughs> Let's try this again. And the phrase here in Hebrew, arise and go, is the same phrase that we, was used back in chapter one. It's a typical phrase that's, that's used when a prophet is given a message. But you'll notice here, he's told to go, but we're not, we're not told what the message is. The Lord is persistent with us. That should, that should be noted here. He's persistent with Jonah. Jonah's given a second chance. He's told to go to the great city of Nineveh. Now, the great city of Nineveh, I believe, is speaking of not just its grandness, it being a large city, it was that, but also that it's an evil city. We see this phrase used in other places to speak of Babylon, for example. It's large, it's evil, but it's important to God. It's important to God. And and the scripture says, deliver the message I have given to you. Uh, One translation says, proclaim to it. Notice that's a different phrase than in chapter one, which said to speak against it or preach against it. So there's a slight difference here. Proclaim to it, speak to it. An indication that a word of judgment isn't all that God has in mind. Pay attention to that. But we're not told exactly what the message is, which is, as I said, out of the ordinary with Old Testament prophets. And I think that the author of Jonah wants us, uh, certainly would have wanted his Jewish readers to notice this. Why why didn't we get the message? What was the message? Hmm. Look at verse 3. This time Jonah obeyed Yahweh's command and he went to Nineveh, a city so large that it took three days to see it all. So you can see from this map here, Jonah is headed for Tarshish. God God interferes, God intervenes, and God sends him back onto dry land and he heads for Nineveh. 
What, look at this, three days to walk through this city, three days, that's a big city, but the author's also telling us something else. Where else have we seen this phrase, three days? In this story, three days in the belly of the fish, right? We're meant to be reminded of Jonah's time in the belly of the fish. In other words, Jonah's walk into Nineveh is like being swallowed up again for Jonah. <laughs> it's like being exiled from the land of the living. Furthermore, the city of Nineveh is named after Nina, which is a Babylonian goddess that was symbolized by all things a fish. From fish to fish, belly to belly, death to death, Jonah has gone. Here we are, into Nineveh, the capital city of what is known as the Neo-Assyrian Empire to historians. And who were the Assyrians and what was their empire like? It might be helpful to know something about Israel's nearest neighbor and their enemy um, as, as it is this, this much to do with why Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. The Assyrian Empire is considered by historians to be the first real empire the world has ever seen. One of their rulers once referred to himself as the king of the universe. Well, he was a real humble guy, wasn't he? The king of the universe. They were masters of geographical and political administration. They were the first to have a standing army of several hundred thousand men. They were known for being merciless conquerors. When they defeated a tribe or a nation, they would take a, a portion of the conquered people back to their cities as slaves by sticking big hooks into their nose and their lips, sometimes their jaws, and they would lead them back like dogs on a leash to their country. The Assyrians were also the very first to use a form of crucifixion against their enemies. But that's not all. They especially liked to impale and flay those who oppressed them. Here you can see in 701 BC, they, uh, when they were invaded, when they invaded the southern kingdom of Judah, they flayed the Jews there. An event famously depicted on what is known as the Lachish re Reliefs, which would have been in the uh, hall of one of their kings. You can see this today in the British Museum. Just horrific and brutal to be sure. So you can imagine how the Jewish folks of the day and Jonah particularly would have felt about the Assyrians. Of course, like all evil empires, you have the citizenry that are trying to make a living, right? They're just normal people. They're trying to provide for their families. They're also creating beauty and creating art and culture. For example, Nineveh is known for having elaborate parks uh, gardens, zoos that housed animals from every corner of the east. But to be sure, that didn't interest Israel. <laughs> it, it certainly wasn't the reason Jonah was going to Nineveh for some sort of vacation with the family. Back to verse 4. On the day Jonah entered the city, a liter more literal translation would say, one day's walk. Well, one day's walk, he shouted to the crowds, 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. And notice that again, one day's walk. One day's walk into a city that took how many days? 
three days. And so Jonah barely makes it in (laughs) before shouting his message. The author's also, I think, paralleling Jonah's actions with the the prophet Elijah's one-day walk into the wilderness. You remember he, he was trying to flee from Ahab and Jezebel. Hides, eventually hides into in a cave and asks God to kill him. What will Jonah do in chapter four? Anybody read ahead yet? <laughs> you know the story? Now in Hebrew, this is a five sentence sermon that Jonah gives here. 40 days from now, Nineveh will be destroyed. It's five words in Hebrew. Not a very long sermon and not much to go on, is it? And remember, we weren't told what the message was there's reason to believe this wasn't all what God told him. (laughs) Jonah says 40 days. This in the Old Testament signifies a time of testing, a time of trial. Remember, 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus spent 40 days in the Judean wilderness. A a sign of of testing, of trial, which usually ends with salvation and deliverance. Nineveh will be destroyed. That's destroyed, the New Living Translation, which I'm reading from. It says destroyed. The New American Standard, a more literal translation says overthrown, or in Hebrew, maybe a better word is overturned. Overturned, literally, think of that, overturned. In Hebrew, the verb is the same used when describing what happened to Sodom and Gomorrah in Genesis 19. It uses the same word. And clearly, that's being evoked here. Now, would the folks at Nineveh have known that? We don't know. However, the word hapach in, in Hebrew can also mean turn over, turn around, or change. <laughs> in other places with the Old Testament, hapach describes Moses' staff being changed into a snake. Balaam's curse against Israel is changed or turned into a blessing. Mourning and sorrow is turned into dancing, the psalmist says, and so forth. Just as the early church, what they do? Turned the world upside down. There can be two different meanings here. Of course, we know the rest of the story and we know what Jonah intends to mean. But once again, Yahweh has another surprise for Jonah and what way he's going to overturn them. Hmm. Still, Jonah's best efforts to wish the worst on his enemies will be used by God to say, okay, Jonah, so you want Nineveh to be overturned, do you? Well, I'll surely overturn them. I'll change them. I'll transform them. Verse five, the people of Nineveh believed God's message. Now, in the Hebrew, the word for God here is not the covenant name, Notice in your English Bible, it doesn't say Lord in all caps, does it? It's God, because the word there is Elohim. It's sort of a a generic word for God. Jonah hasn't proclaimed to them a message from Yahweh, the covenant-making God, and the covenant-making God that invites you into the covenant. Jonah hasn't given them much to go on at all, has he? This is extraordinary, really. Jonah gives them very little to go on. He doesn't mention Yahweh. He doesn't name their sin. He doesn't tell them what they've done. (laughs) He doesn't tell them what they need to do to avoid the wrath of God, the wrath to come. He simply says, and in his own mind, I hear it this way, get ready, folks, because you're all about to die. 
And we can't help but ask, what was God already doing in the hearts and the minds of the folks of Nineveh for them to respond so wonderfully to a message given so poorly from Jonah? It appeared that the God of mercy had gone before him. And for whatever reason, internally, among these folks at Nineveh, they knew things had reached a tipping point, and it was time to repent and time to turn to God. And the response is so unexpected but significant. So unexpected and significant. Look, look, what, it, look what it says there, right? Verse 6 or verse 5, the rest of verse 5. And from the greatest to the least, they declared a fast and they put on burlap to show their sorrow. Five words from God's so-called prophet and God overturns them. And their response is, as I said, so unexpected and significant that Jesus mentions it here in, in Luke chapter 11, verse 32. He says, the people of Nineveh will also stand up against this generation on judgment day and condemn it, for they repented of their sins at the preaching of Jonah. That is, they are not, right? But he says, now someone greater than Jonah is here, but you refuse to repent. Now, I've referenced this passage a few times in this series, once in, in a couple of times already in, in the uh, Gospel of Matthew. Here it is in the Gospel of Luke. You'll recall that this is Jesus' response to the crowd's demand for more and more signs to prove that he is the Messiah and the Son of God. The signs he'd already done wasn't enough, apparently. And so Jesus is frustrated, rightfully so. He's frustrated by their lack of faith, their unwillingness to believe on what they've already seen and what they've heard. So he tells them that the only sign that he's going to give them is himself. Just as Jonah was in the belly of the fish, Jesus will be in the belly of the earth for three days. Jesus says, I will go down to Sheol. I will go down to the grave yet I am greater. I will conquer the grave. I will die being faithful and will rise victorious. The grave will swallow me up, but God will cause the grave to spit me back out on dry land. And I will go forth, Jesus says. I will embody the mercy of God and draw all people to myself. Right, I mean, you, you think of Jesus' kind of Jonah sort of moment. It's in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knows what God has called him to do, but does he run? No, he doesn't. Instead, he says, I don't want to do this, but not my will, but yours be done. Jesus is greater. Jesus is greater. Here I am, he says to his people. Do you see me? Do you recognize that someone far greater than Jonah is here? And like, like Jonah and all the rest of the, new, the, the Old Testament is pointing to the new covenant, is pointing to Jesus as the fulfillment. You can hear Jesus pleading with them, inviting them as he invites us now. And then in verse 6, remember the people heard the message. They repented. In verse 6, the king of Nineveh heard what Jonah was saying. He heard he heard, it was, a, it was like a, a rumor, word was spread. He didn't actually hear it straight from Jonah. That's saying something. So he stepped down from his throne and took off his royal robes. He dressed himself in burlap and sat on a heap of ashes. Wow, 
You see, the, the word reached him. The king actually hadn't heard it from Jonah himself, but the message had traveled so quickly, made such an impact, that it apparently was enough to move him to respond, to take on a, the, the posture of repentance. In fact, the image here is one of Job. That language should be familiar to some of you. Sitting in burlap sack and ashes. The, the king has taken this posture. The difference is nothing's happened yet. Look at the faith. Look, look at the willingness to respond from these, from these violent, evil pagans. Just for fear of what might come, because he doesn't know what else to do. He doesn't know what else to do. Jonah didn't tell him anything else. In chapter 4, it'll be quite clear what Jonah wanted to come of this situation. He immediately, the king immediately humbles himself. The commentator Philip Carey writes, he says, the sight is comic, no question. But such comedy is only to be expected from a king trying to figure out how to appease the wrath of Elohim, of God, without any help from the law and the prophets. He's improvising without a script. The king doesn't fear an invasion from a foreign enemy, but something like maybe fire from heaven that destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. This is, in his mind, what divine wrath looks like. And then look at verse 7. Then the king and his nobles sent this decree throughout the city. No one, not even the animals from your herds and flocks, may eat or drink anything at all. Do you see, do you see that? Look how serious he is. He's saying that the animals need to fast. Even the animals, people and animals, verse 8, alike must wear garments of mourning. Now, get that picture in your head. Cows in burlap sack. They must turn from their evil ways and stop all their violence. Hmm. Did you notice that? Jonah didn't tell them what their sin was. They already knew. We must stop all of our evil ways, stop all of our violence. Verse 9, for who can tell? Perhaps even yet God will change his mind and hold back his fierce anger from destroying us. New American Standard Bible says they are to turn each one from his evil way and from the violence which is in their hands. Now think about this, folks. You see, hands are what build evil empires. Hands are what build evil empires, from the obelisks to the ziggurats, the pyramids, to the towers, even the modern towers we build today. The hands that enslave other human beings to the hands that commit bloody violence in war and through acts of terror to enforce their worldly kingdom reign and rule. It is therefore with the heart and with the hands that they and we must repent. Finally, look at verse 10. When God saw what they had done and how they had put a stop to their evil ways, he changed his mind. Now let that sink in a minute. God changes his mind? Apparently so. God changed his mind and he did not carry out the destruction that he had threatened. Once again, the commentator Carey writes, he says, by leading us to anticipate 
the terror of what the Lord might do. The narrative shows us the glory of what he does do. <laughs> the glory of what he does do. You know, at, 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 at a simple act, the simple posture of humility and of repentance, of confession. We've been evil. We've done violence. To take upon this posture, to, to, to do this simple act, God changes his mind. And of course, this mercy isn't just for our enemies. I mean, you, you think about who are the Ninevites in your life? Who are the people that you think are beyond saving? Who are the people that you don't want to be saved? Insert them there, right? Now, think about how God cares for them. Think about how God loves them. Think about how God is, is so willing to be quick to pour out his mercy and his grace and his forgiveness. Why? Well, he doesn't just do it for them. He also does it for us, right? Look at Titus chapter 3, verse 3 through 7. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says to his Padawan learner, Titus. He says this in chapter 3, beginning verse 3, Once we too were foolish and disobedient. We were misled and became slaves to many lusts and pleasures. Our lives were full of evil and envy, and we hated each other. But... When God, our Savior, revealed his kindness and love, he saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because, say it with me, church, because of his mercy. Because of his mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and new life through the Holy Spirit. <laughs> he spit us out on dry land. He generously poured out the Holy Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ, our Savior. Because of his grace, he made us right in his sight, and he gave us confidence that we will inherit eternal life. My friends, Jesus is greater than Jonah. And just as the God of mercy went before him to the people of Nineveh, that mercy has been extended to us and made plain in the cross of Christ. May we allow that mercy to go before us as we share in God's heart for all people, believing that they too might be saved. Amen. Real quick, here are a few theological takeaways from Jonah 3. We've been doing this each week. Just a few, few takeaways. Maybe you've seen more. Here's what I see. To be able to connect our theology to our living faith and practice. Number one, people we see in the story may repent with threats of wrath and judgment, but let's be clear, they need the full gospel. They need the full gospel. You see, folks, we, we've got to hold together judgment with hope, but I'm going to say something more about this in the next chapter, uh, next week, whether or not Jonah is really a true prophet, because a true prophet doesn't just preach a word of judgment but also a word of hope. Like if you will repent, then God will show you mercy. So we've gotta, we've gotta learn to hold judgment and hope together. 
We must also preach the good news, even speak against sin, and offer works of mercy and justice. You see, if the world sees only evangelism, only simply trying to win them over, then people, they're just objects of conversion. It, it, it just looks as if we're trying to increase our tribe, that's all. And people can smell that a, a mile away, a thousand miles away today. And when they only see us doing humanitarian aid without evangelism, without the proclamation of the gospel, then they aren't confronted with the good news of Christ. You see, the full gospel is proclamation with works of mercy and justice. The full gospel is works of justice with the proclamation of the gospel. We need to hold those together. Another thing I see bubbling up through chapter three here. God responds when we humble ourselves and turn from sin. There is mercy for everyone. You see, the story of Nineveh's repentance is a testimony of how far God's mercy can reach. And all that is required is humility and turning to him. So I'm gonna ask you again, is there someone that you think is beyond God's mercy? You may need to think again and talk to God about it because you don't want to end up like Jonah. Lastly, you never know. You never know how God has been at work in our lost neighbors and enemies. Their hearts may be ready for the change that he can bring. Amen. What, what are, say, who? Who do, who do you know that needs to encounter the grace of God? and be changed by Jesus. Let's pray for them, and let's trust that God's mercy can go before us. Amen, church, amen. Now for our post-teaching segment in this series, uh, if you're just joining us, what we've been doing each week in a post-teaching segment called This Time Tomorrow is to help us connect the story of Jonah to our everyday lives, a way to bridge our faith from Sunday to Monday and the rest of the week. We've been inviting folks to share where they will be this time tomorrow, which will be about 11.30 or so. Uh, Today I've invited Justin Weber uh, to come and share with us. Would you welcome Justin? Hello, sir. Hello, how are you? Good. Justin, two questions. I told him I'm going to stick to the two questions. I, mean, from a, <laughs> I asked I, for a curveball, but he said he'd <laughs> stick to the two. Well, then, you, then you'll return the favor, and I don't, I, don't, I don't know if I'm ready for that. First question, where will you be this time tomorrow? So I work in Harrisburg, and if my schedule permits, or sometimes I put it on my schedule and I disguise it, I try to get out and either do a run or go up to the Y uh, right there on Front Street. It's a wonderful melting pot of the community. And so I try to get a workout in over lunch. So hopefully, if everything works out tomorrow, I will either be running along the river or uh, at the Y. Awesome, awesome. Second question is, how can we pray for you as you engage God's mission of mercy? So I read two things recently, and I think they're somewhat interconnected. But, um, and you may have saw it, um, there was a Surgeon General's advisory this week that said that people are, there's an epidemic of loneliness and isolation. Um, in our communities. And that really, that struck me. Um, it, was, it was quite um, 
well, if you read through it, it's, it's somewhat depressing if you look at the graphs. And I think the pandemic certainly helped to accelerate that. But the other thing that was encouraging that I also read was a study, and it said we underestimate the value. It said a little, a little good goes a long way. And we systematically underestimate the value of acts of kindness. So what it essentially the takeaway was the giver, the person who's acting and being kind thinks it's not a big deal, but it is a big deal to the person receiving it. Oh, yeah. And we systematically undervalue that. Mm. Um, and so that was encouraging to think about you know, interacting with those people we come in contact with on a daily basis. And so my prayer for me and really for all of us would be that my eyes would be open to those people that I'm coming in contact with that are feeling isolated or disconnected mm. because I don't want to live in a community or a commonwealth um, where people are disconnected and oh, isolated. Yeah. Um, and so that my eyes would be open to seeing those people and to seeing how I might be able yeah. to yeah. impact them in some yeah, way. That's good. That's good. Can we pray for you now? Absolutely. Let's pray for Justin. Father, we, we pray that you would go before Justin this week and the weeks after, that you would help, to, help him to, to see, open his eyes, Lord, uh, to the people that may be around him that need a friend, that may feel isolated and alone. Uh, Lord, so open his eyes and, and give him courage and give him the faith, Lord, to befriend folks and to uh, bring life and light and love into the city, into the city that you love so much. Lord, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks, Justin. Appreciate it, man. Thank you. So church, where will you be this time tomorrow? Think about it. Stop right now and think about it. Where will you be this time tomorrow? What will you be doing? Who will you be with? How is God inviting you to join his mission of mercy there? Let's close in prayer together. Father, we, we ask that you would give us your spirit as we go out into the world to see and to believe that you're already at work there before we get there. Lord, we can look at Jonah's story and see that he didn't have this mindset. He didn't even want to go. Lord, give us, give us your desire. May, may our desire be to want to go. May our desire want to be that we are here ready and available for you. Would you use us this time tomorrow? For it's in Christ's name that we pray.